Hello and welcome to Moving Beyond Stigma. My name is Michelle Crossman and I am your host. Today we have a very special guest, Steve Laurie. Steve recently retired as executive director of the Canadian Mental Health Association Toronto branch, a post that he held from 1979 to 2020. He is now a senior fellow at the Wellesley Institute. Steve has written and lectured extensively on mental health policy issues, and we are very excited to have him here today and chat with us. Welcome, Steve. Hi, everybody, and hi, Michelle. Wonderful that you're doing this podcast. Thank you so much. It's been very exciting to get things rolling and talk a little bit more about mental health. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share about yourself before we get into it? Well, um, I guess my background in uh, in mental health is um, related to policy work in relation to the social determinants of health that affect things like uh, housing, poverty, employment, as well as service delivery. The, uh, the CMHA branch that I led uh, had a very comprehensive range of services um, and you know that included everything from assertive community treatment teams, early psychosis intervention, employment as I mentioned, supportive housing, but also we found that um, peer support uh, both for uh, service users and families was really important. So I think I bring uh, a perspective about the range of things that make a difference in, in, in people's mental health. Mm-hmm. And, and also uh, some of the work that I did for the Mental Health Commission um, was uh, you know, national in scope um, and, and I chaired their Service Systems Advisory Committee uh, when, when they first got started for about five years and that's where we tried to get a sense of what needs to happen to advance a, a mental health strategy for Canada. And of course it included things like housing, mm-hmm. access to services, those kinds of things. Um, and then what was the commission's role around knowledge transfer and trying to get every pe- get people to move in you know the right direction and not have to reinvent the wheel um, yeah. 13 different times. Yeah, definitely. That's amazing. Um, all of those things are so necessary and bringing attention to all the things that institutes do or initiatives do for mental health. I think a lot of times it kind of... From an outside perspective, like if you don't know what's going on and you don't know what's actually being done to help improve the system and help give people what they need, um, from the outside it can feel like, you know, not enough is being done because we don't see the whole picture, you know? So I think that's really, really fascinating and important to hear about what is actually being done. Well, and, you know, I think you identify, I mean, from the general public's point of view or somebody who's living with mental illness or Mm -hmm. who has a family or a friend and you know the numbers are kind of daunting when you know Statistic Canada used to have a a figure that they said oh well uh, you know one in five people will experience mental illness in their lifetime and that's since been revised to one in five annually Mm -hmm. Uh, and then you know the Mental Health Commission has some statistics that suggest that by the time you reach age 40 and you're nowhere near that but 50% 50% of people uh, will experience mental illness. If you live to 90, 70% will. Yes. Um, and, and then, you know, if you just think about, okay, those statistics suggest half of us at a minimum will, will live with mental illness or a substance use issue at some point in our lives. Um, and then you think that we're all connected. So we've got family members, friends, 
mm-hmm. people we know. And, and so really the reach of mental illness is, uh, is much larger than most people think. Yes. You know, it, it's uh, the disease burden um, is uh, 1.5 times that of cancer, uh, 7.5 that of infectious illness. So, you know, even in the, in the face of COVID, uh, you think about, okay, well, people, people worry about COVID, the flu, RSX. But, you know, again, if you have 20% of your population in any one year who are experiencing significant difficulty so that clinically some intervention would make a difference, that's mm-hmm. huge. Very huge. Yeah, I feel like everybody I know has a connection to mental health and mental illness, you know, like whether it be themselves or again, like a family member, a friend. Um, and even and even when I was younger, like even a teen or my young 20s, it, that was not the case. Like it wasn't every single person. It was still like a decent amount, but yeah. you really notice the difference of how much that is kind of expanded and evolved. And I think our awareness around it also brings that number um up just because a lot of times people would would be suffering still but they just never talked about it so it was more on the silent side so then they wouldn't necessarily be included in those stats you know because how would they um yeah well and that's where you know bell let's talk which is this january 25th has done you know an amazing job in sort of making it okay Mm -hmm. to recognize that mental health issues are out there and we should be doing something about them. I mean, the paradox with, 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 with Bell Let's Talk is they do a tremendous job. They raise, you know, in excess of $100 million every year, and people think that's a lot of money, and it is. Um, and they fund projects non-recurring across the country. But the reality is that uh, the work we did at the Mental Health Commission in 2012 suggested that Canada should be spending... Uh, 9% of its health care budget, a minimum of 9%, on mental health services every year. And that's mm-hmm. Canada and the provinces. And that equates to about $3.1 billion wow. annually. So that yeah. technically you would need to see an increased amount of $3.1 billion added every year over the next 10 years to reach that 9% target. And we're, we're not near that. Um, no, not at all. You know, the, the, the federal health accord, you know, the provinces are now debating uh, with the federal government, you know, put 500 million in over 10 years, which gets you about 15% of the way. Ontario, to its credit, matched the federal funding, but then you only got 30% of the way. Right. So, you know, when you step back and you say, so like, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. Uh, part of it is the system is underfunded. Yes. Secondly, the system was under strain prior to COVID, and with COVID, it's, there's, there's more strain. Mm-hmm. Thirdly, what you talked about earlier is there really isn't a system out there. Like, so some people go to their family physician. Yep. Some yep. people go to the clergy. Some people talk with friends. Um, there is in Ontario, we're fortunate to have uh, uh, Connects Ontario, which is a, an online and telephone-based listing of services across the province mental health and addiction services and problem gambling that and for people who need to know about that it's it's www.connectsontario.ca um, and the, the the thing that that's helpful about connects ontario is that they can break down the services that are available close to where you live they also have trained information referral specialists mm-hmm. but i think for the average person navigating the system 
you know, first of all, you know, recognizing you've got an issue, and then secondly saying, okay, so now I need some help. Where am I going to get it? And there, there's no easy answer. Like the people who are connected to services, like I always considered, you know, the 6,000 people that CMHA served every year, you know, in a city with a population of 3 million, but, <laughs> but those 6,000 6, were lucky because yeah. We, yeah. we offered a comprehensive range of services, as I mentioned earlier, you know, everything from peer support to clinical teams. But for the average person who isn't connected with an organization like CMHA or CAMH or even their local hospital or a community-based organization like Loft Community Services, and if people don't even know that these places exist, it's like, how, and that's just in Toronto, it's like, how, how do you get help for yourself? And then, you know, thinking about the, the entry point, most family physicians, I mean, here in Ontario, the statistics are, um, the situation is improving, but most family physicians are still sole practitioners. So it means that your family doc, um, who's had limited training on mental health, doesn't really know what services are out there. Yeah. And, yeah. and may not even know what's an appropriate intervention. A good example of that is if you or I went to see our family doctor for the treatment of mild to moderate anxiety or depression, what do you think we'd get? Probably offered some medication. Oh. And that's about exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> and, 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 and that's where the real paradox is mm -hmm. because we, the, we know that uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is actually the most effective intervention yes. for mild to moderate depression or anxiety. And we're lucky in Ontario and in British Columbia and I think Manitoba that there's a program called Bounce Back that you can access online uh, CBT resources mm -hmm. as well as multilingual telephone-based coaching. Uh, and so there's an, there's an example that if you were suffering from anxiety or depression uh, and you thought, well, I'm going to go to my family doc. No, you really don't need to go to your family doc. Go to Bounce Back yes. and you're going to get a more appropriate service. But how many people actually know that? Exactly. Not many. <laughs> Which is, yeah, definitely a huge part of the problem. Um, and yeah, I, def I actually had that experience this year. I felt like I needed to change my medication because I was like, things just, I was struggling, things were not going well. So I did call my family doctor to talk about it because he was the one whose name was on the medication. <laughs> you oh, know, sure. we chat, yeah, you know, and he we chatted a little bit and he's a very sweet doctor and he was very honest. He's like, you know, like I could only do so much. I was like, yes. I was like, but can you get me in to see somebody else? I was like, I know you can't. I was like, I don't, honestly, it's like no offense, but I don't trust you deciding what my new medication change should be mm -hmm, when this mm -hmm. isn't your area. You know, I was like, I appreciate the offer, but I was like, I just, I don't feel comfortable with that. Are you able to get me in somewhere to see somebody else who can help further? So he did get me in mm -hmm. to see a psychiatrist and then the psychiatrist got me into a DBT group, which was right. really fantastic, you know, yeah, again. Yeah. Um, sometimes those wait periods can be very long. I was lucky it was only like about a month before I, before wow. I could get started. So I got very lucky there. Um, but yeah, like no, but I knew that, like I knew from past experiences and other family experiences that my family doctor couldn't actually do that, but I knew he could maybe get me into somewhere, yeah. <laughs> you know, but a lot of people don't know that. Right. And that's where there's some, you know, some hope on the horizon. The yes. glass is probably half full rather than half empty because mm -hmm. Ontario is trying to develop 
what they call a structured psychotherapy program with multiple access points. Um, mm. And so that's where, um, you know, bounce back might be the entry point, but if your if bounce back isn't working for you, then you might get referred to, uh, you know, uh, group therapy or individual therapy, and there's supposed to be regional hubs developing across the province. But again, without sufficient funding, yes. um, and that's where you kind of have this arcane debate um, you know, it's it's bad enough that the, uh, the the federal and provincial ministers debate about you know accountability and just don't. Uh, the provinces are saying, well, just send us the money, and the feds are saying, well, we want to see what you spend it on. Um, but you know, we've got unfortunately we've got professionals who just say, well, just open up OHIP, and mm-hmm. you know that that that'll make the difference. Well, no, because there are interve- there are evidence-based interventions that make a difference. Yes. So, for example, you know, you had access to DBT. A young person who's experiencing early psychosis will benefit from an early psychosis program, which has a multidisciplinary approach. So they don't just medicate the young person. There's talk therapy. There is medication. There's focus on school. There's focus on building the family relationships, and those kinds of things. And in yeah. fact, Canada has had. Um, a project uh, called uh, Access Open Minds um, that uh, uh, w- was funded by the Beck Foundation and, and CAHR and tremendous results uh, across the country and they're now trying to scale that type of intervention up through youth hubs uh, um, u- using um, the approach that uh, Dr. Patrick McGorry developed in Australia and internationally where um, a place called Headspace, so sort of a drop-in for young people, you know, mm, yes. low barrier, um, you just show up and then depending on what you need, then you're sort of connected to what you need to get. And so, you know, th- that's, I think, the the paradox of the, the mental health system where actually there is promising and evidence-based practice. The problem is that we aren't scaling it quickly enough so that most people who could benefit from it would, would be able to, to get those services. And that's, you know, that's where I think uh, as, as Canadians we need to keep the pressure on our provincial and federal governments to say, look, you've got to make the appropriate investments in evidence-based care. I mean, it's interesting, when Jane Philpott was uh, first uh, selected as the Minister of Health in the early days of the Trudeau administration, um, I had an opportunity to meet with her. And so, you know, we talked about um, what was the situation in mental health. And I said, well, you know, if you look across the country, you've got provinces um, who all of whom have done their own mental health plans, but have never had the money to fund them. Yeah. So, you know, maybe there's a role for the federal government here. Um, but I also said that the, you know, that the important thing as well is that the glass is more than half full. You've actually got evidence-based services that you could scale. But you need to make sure that the provinces spend the money on things that will work and that will make a difference. And so, you know, in 2016, 2017, I mean, it was um, a rather tough set of negotiations because the provinces just wanted the federal government to send the money. And uh, Minister Philpott insisted that um, there the there would be uh, dedicated funds for mental health. And in fact, um, the provinces did a terrific job. There, You can go to the Shared Priorities website and see what they proposed to spend the money on. 
But here we are five years later having a debate about whether there should be no strings attached money. The provinces have yet to report publicly mm. on what they did with the money they got from the federal government in the first place. Right. So we, we don't really have answers to the questions of is access improving? Is there more evidence-based service? But that's what people need. I mean, yeah. you, you, you know, it's like um, when, you know, if you had a broken arm, uh, you, you would, you know, go to the hospital, they would put it in a cast, they would propose uh, and suggest uh, physiotherapy for you, and over time you'd get better. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we need the same kind of approach for mental health issues, so, and, and, and a no-wrong-door approach. So if, yes. you, if you call, uh, you know, 211 here in, in, in Toronto, or you call Connects, or uh, you go to your family doc, that there's an easy way to get you into the right kind of service. Yeah, definitely. I know I have people in my life who have um, gone to like the emergency room at like KMH and um, been turned away because there's no space, mm -hmm. you know, and the amount of um, strength it takes to after you would, you know, you say, okay, I need this help. I need to go. Yeah, yeah. To get yourself up, pack your bag, you go, and then they can't keep you because there's not enough beds. They don't yeah. have the space, you know, which, like, is so heartbreaking. But, again, mm -hmm. that all comes down to, like, not having the funding, not having the proper yeah. care just readily available. And then you have to deal with the repercussions of being turned down, even though that's obviously not what they want to do. Right. But that's all they yeah. have. Like, they don't have anything else, you know? And then that can create such a cycle as well for those who, you know, are trying to reach these places, but then there's not enough of it there. Well, and I think that's where, again, sort of thinking about how the, what the architecture of, of, of the mental health service system should be. Because yes. there are, because, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's interesting in Madison, Wisconsin, back you know almost 50 years ago they developed what now has become known as assertive community treatment hospital without walls um, mm. and and that's where you have you if you've got a complex mental illness you um, you'll have a team of people around you a psychiatrist a nurse and occupational therapist peer support workers you know we're fortunate we have over 60 of the, such teams in uh, Ontario, but there are wait lists to get into them. Yes. Anyway, the, 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 when, when the program was first set up, what used to happen is people would go to hospital and what, what they would end up doing is they would, if an admission was required, it would happen, but most of the time they just connected people with these teams and they found that um, they didn't come back to hospital because they got the services they needed in the community. And, you know, we did some research here in Ontario, uh, looking at the 55 teams Ontario had at the time. And we were able to show that, like in the first year before you got uh, uh, sent to an assertive community treatment team, you might spend 50 days a year in hospital. But after six years, it was down um, to 10 days on average. And that was an 82% reduction. Wow. in hospitalization and it also showed we did an economic analysis that showed that for every team that you funded there was a net savings in reduced hospitalizations of 1.4 million dollars right mm. so um so 
part of this is to get the architecture right because most people if we if the system worked properly you wouldn't need to go to CAMH needing an admission exactly uh, you'd be able to access the right kind of supports in the community and um, you know th that a, a, a psychiatric hospital admission would be would be very very limited I mean there are um, it's interesting there's a good exp a good reason to go to Italy if you're uh, <laughs> thinking of traveling. Um, um, uh, and actually, I went to, uh, many, uh, I guess about 10, 10 years ago, I went to Trieste because I'd heard that Trieste, which was, uh, you know, a city where James Joyce hung out and did a lot of his writing, uh, actually had um, a sort of a state-of-the-art mental health system. And they didn't have any... Um, psychiatric units per se because mm -hmm. all the service was in the community I, I remember visiting one of their community mental health centers and um, a, a woman came with her 18 year old son who was psychotic uh, uh, but the, the nurse intervened an hour and a half later uh, the, the the young man was telling the, the the team to go get him an espresso you know I mean like it was it was like quite dramatic they wow. they, they had four beds for a population of um, I think 300,000 people hmm. four hospital beds and most of the beds uh, weren't weren't being used um, in fact half of the beds were being were, were uh, being taken up because one of the community mental health centers had their short stay beds under renovation oh yes. so you know so there's 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 a um, there's evidence that you know if you put the teams in the community and you take a multidisciplinary approach and you look at making sure people have the range of supports they need to forestall a crisis, yes. that's what's going to make the difference. And I remember uh, visiting Japan, uh, you know, I guess I guess that was what 2008. So um, it, w it was interesting because most Japan actually has a very high psychiatric bed utilization rate. But when when we got to Osaka, Dr. Sara Sawa had, uh, who was the chief of psychiatry in Osaka, had been to Trieste, oh. and he replicated Trieste in Osaka. Hmm. And so there was one place in Japan where actually they had low bed utilization because again the services were in the community. They had bought up apartment blocks for people, and there was supportive housing, and then their you know their clinical staff made the rounds and made sure people had food, made sure hmm. uh, people had their medication, made sure people had something to do during the day, and all of those things made a difference. And and you know so for those folks and their families. Yes. It, it meant that having a mental illness, you know, was, yes, I mean, again, if 20% if of us are going to have that annually, um, it, it's not something to be ashamed of. It's something to live with. Exactly. And, and so in the same way that if, you know, you had kidney problems and you'd go to your GP and you'd get, you know, the right kind of diet and the right kind of medication to deal with your kidney problems, we are still aspiring to have access to mental health services that would provide uh, both um, appropriate care within primary care, specialized care like psychiatry if you need it. Mm -hmm. But again, that's where psychiatry 
can do a lot in the community and those teams, like I mentioned, the early psychosis teams and the assertive community treatment teams that have access to um, uh, psychiatry as part of the way they do their work, yes. um, it means that often it's, it's consultation. And, you know, that, that's where, again, we've got these pockets of excellence across the country. Um, uh, Dr. Nick Cates and a colleague of his, Marilyn Craven, set up a system in Hamilton 40 years ago where the family practices had almost immediate access to psychiatry. And it's, the, it's one of the only places in the country that's had it as a system. Wow. But it means that if you live in Hamilton and you show up at your GP and you're struggling with depression or anxiety or uh, a more serious I issue, you can get probably within a half a day, you can get a consultation and probably a visit within two days. Wow. And, and you know, and so you think about that. And if we had more of those kinds of arrangements, people wouldn't be waiting for hours in emergency, as you talked about. Exactly. Only to away, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. No, that's incredible. I love that they have programs like that. Um, and just like the safety that is um, felt, you know, when you have a team of people where you're not stuck just waiting and waiting and waiting and feeling right. on your own. You have multiple, multiple people there ready to help you, ready to kind of see you through the work, you know, instead of the hey, here's some meds, maybe try meditating, maybe try this, and good luck, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. and kind of leaving you on your own. Um, and that's so difficult to just kind of, you know, get yourself up and going. Like, you need those people to kind of help motivate you, give you things to do, help push the healing forward. Um, I actually did not know that about Hamilton, so that's really, really, yeah, really yeah. cool. I love that they have that. That's such an incredible... Um, program to have instilled you know yeah well and you, and i think you talked about and it's not just having access to uh clinical services i mean we know um and we have known for uh, probably 20 years now that uh, people being able to access peer support yes uh, and family support mm -hmm. uh, makes a huge difference there's a wonderful program at cmha toronto you might want to reach out to jillian gray um, to talk about the Family Outreach and Response Program, which has mm -hmm. been sort of exported internationally because it, it helps families um, sort of take a, a recovery stance to, mm -hmm. uh, to dealing with their loved one's mental illness because often families are desperate, especially if they can't get services. And they, you know, so we often hear things, well, you know, my son or my daughter or my husband or my wife, they have no insight into their illness. And geez, if we could just put them in hospital, that would solve the problem. So a program like FOUR helps families both figure out how to navigate the mental health system, but also it gives them hope and it helps them and it gives them skills to be able to help their, their loved one deal with, you know, what isn't a very... Uh, easy and uh, accessible mental health system and it's it's on it's skill building on top of the family and mm -hmm. also the families support each other um, and you know you re you realize that that notion of um, community uh, support is uh, is is probably a, a game changer there's a, a program in in, in Brazil uh, called community integrative therapy where um, a, a psychiatrist has brought together just regular folks 
who experience we all experience you know anxiety and yeah for sure and it, it's it's a non-judgmental approach, but they found is particularly in I mean you know with what's happened in Brazil, I imagine anxiety recently Brazil, the the, the uh, anxiety's gone up, but mm-hmm. notwithstanding you know the uh, attempted coup, um, th- what they were able to do in even small remote areas is leverage the power of community to have common sense about here's how you deal with issues. And and so and and that's very much a peer model. Like nobody's an expert, yeah, yeah. in their own wellness. Mm-hmm. And and so you know you put ideas on the table. People are free to accept or not. Uh, but again, there's been there's been research done on that that shows it's quite effective. And so you know it's a, it, you know if we were thinking of a system, it would be okay. So what do we need to make available to folks in terms of peer and family support? And how do we make sure that's ubiquitous? And you know, these days, with with um, things like uh, the uh, with the availability of the internet, virtual care, um, you, you know, technically for peer support and stuff, you, uh, you you don't even need your local supports. I mean, you could leverage supports in Australia, and you know, yes, and so, exactly. Yeah, so again, curating what kind of you know self help is available to people on their phone. I mean, there's a a, a wonderful little program that um, you can download for free. Apparently, there's well over 2,000 mental health apps. Uh, David Goldblum, who was the uh, the chair of the Mental Health Commission and chief clinical advisor at at CAMH, told me about this program called WISA, W-Y-S-A, and you can sort of search it online. What's interesting about WISA is um, it's actually uh, one of these programs where... you put in, you know, you 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 open the link. Uh, this little bot starts to ask you how are you doing, how are you feeling, and it's quite remarkable because it's totally interactive. Mm. Uh, and in fact, when they were designing the program, because it's AI fueled, so they're using artificial intelligence, but they all they actually had to slow down the process because you would often get. A reply to your issue before you'd finish typing in your oh no <laughs> yeah but but again things like that you know people lots of people live on their phones so yeah. like if somebody you know was feeling anxious I mean, and I've tried it myself it's 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 a good little program you yeah. know it asks you questions it gets you thinking mm. um, and they now actually have um, you know if you want to talk to somebody you can do that as well. So, you know, actually, we're, we're into, and this is, I think, a, a, going to be a challenge for provincial and federal governance because we're into borderless mental health care, yes. given the ubiquity of um, of apps and you know our, our our use of the internet. But that's a strength. Yeah, definitely. Part of what's you know been a problem here is that we tend to have a guild approach. You know, so we won't license different professionals. Uh, from a different province here, and you know, so psychiatrists want to keep control of what they do. Um, social workers want to keep control of what they do. I mean, here in Ontario, at least we've got the College of Psychotherapists, yes. which is, which says it doesn't matter where where you were trained. If you can meet these standards, you're you're eligible to practice psychotherapy. But I think we need to get our heads around that we live in a world now where people can go online and find supports. And so what would be really helpful would be to have some curation where, you know, 
some objective uh, assessment of, okay, well, there's WISA, um, there's uh, um, not myself and I, and, you know, all, all these various programs, give them stars or something like that, you know. And, and some of that yeah. could be even done where you engage users, you know. So, so um, you know, if, if I used WISA, in fact, WISA asks, it's just they don't necessarily publish their results, but they say, you know, was this helpful? I mean, you know, it's interesting. I, I mean, I have a, a little program on my hearing aids where uh, if, it's, if, if they aren't working properly, I can speak to some AI-enabled bot somewhere, and, <laughs> and he, will make an he or she will make an adjustment in my hearing aid program. Yeah. Then he asks me, do you need anything else? Do you want to save this uh, arrangement? And, you know, can I help you further? Uh, and, and, and so it seems to me we could make mental health care much more accessible to people if we recognized that, yes, you know, ideally people will want to uh, be able to and will need to access in-person services locally. Definitely. But at the same time, here's what's available, you know, through the web. And then uh, also at the same time build um, real opportunities for peer and family support in local communities. And that would make a difference for people. Oh, 100%. I feel like that would make a world of difference, honestly. Um, and you could even have like a sort of peer support on these apps, you know, like yeah, yeah. connecting people who are potentially going through something similar so you can, you know, feel heard and recognized and work together. Um, yeah. Exactly. And then these kinds of things can also very much help you know hopefully shorten those wait lists for the in-person things you know because yeah. sometimes you don't need that and then other times you really really do you know right. so then when right. we have these different available options that are out there easily accessible um and offer more you know and then yeah. we can really really dive into that um and the peer and family stuff i fully fully believe is so important and yeah. You know, especially being someone who lives in in Toronto and a lot of my friends are artists and a lot of them move from far away from their families to then come here, mm -hmm. you know, and then they're left with not having their family close, you know, so then they kind of have right. to build that with their friends. And you can take people a very long time to actually feel safe and comfortable with the family that they built. Sometimes it happens quickly and you just you just never know. And having something available that can kind of guide you mm -hmm. so that you know how to build that safety with other people um that would be absolutely incredible yeah well and you know and there, there's uh, you know cheryl forchick who you know quite well yeah. uh, has, has done some really interesting research around using apps to help people with complex conditions manage mm -hmm. their illness and so she did um some work in supportive housing in London where uh, people living in supportive housing units uh, were able to manage how they took their medication and other mm -hmm. tasks. And what it actually meant was, A, the, the people felt much more empowered. So, yes. yeah, you have to coach them on using the app. But once they knew how to do that, things took care of themselves. People took their medication regularly. People, you know, met their schedules in terms of things they needed to do. Um, and what it actually resulted in was savings to the system because a number of these folks um, 
would need to have, let's say, even a daily visit from an assertive community treatment team nurse for their medication. They didn't need that anymore. The team didn't have to visit daily. So, you know, it seems to me, uh, and the Mental Health Commission has done some thinking on, you know, what does e-mental health mean? Yes. But, uh, but I think there, you know, we're faced with opportunities where if we leverage e-mental health uh, to improve and increase access, we will be able to see a knock-on effect in terms of, as you've said, people who get the services and supports they need, you know, uh, even on the phone, yeah. uh, um, won't, won't need as much in-person care. And then you'll be able to make sure that in-person care is direct, directed at, you know, where it would have the most impact. And again, a, a hybrids will probably emerge. I mean, where um, we found at CMHA during the pandemic, while we had you know, some very clear standards about when an in-person visit was required, so that if people were worried about a client and they did a mental status exam, okay, and things didn't seem to be moving in the right direction, you masked up, gowned up, and you went and you did a personal visit. But we found that just, f we had peers in, in, in Roots in our drop-in center phoning people, you know, once a week, sometimes daily, just to check in on the phone, like a real, like, you know, yeah. not, not, not a rotary dial phone, but a phone. Uh, <laughs> And it made a difference because yeah. it provided that personal contact that you were talking about. Yeah, somebody cares about me. Somebody's interested in what's going on in my life. Mm -hmm. And and again, so you know, I think the future will will be you know how do we leverage technology to make mental health supports more accessible to people, but at the same time, how do we make sure that the supports we are providing are evidence based exactly. and that they're easy to get? Yeah, yeah. No, that's so, so, so true. Um, yeah, even just a quick phone call once a week could make such a difference in some people's lives. Just even mm -hmm. just hearing the voice, you know, and knowing that they're right there. Um, this is very, well, I, very fascinating. <laughs> I remember, um, I, I guess it was a virtual, uh, was it a virtual conference? I think it was, yeah. Uh, a few years ago, um, there was a, a, a presentation on, no, it, it I, it wasn't virtual. Sorry, it, it, was, I, it was actually you know pre-COVID, and I actually went to this uh, this, this conference in Washington. But um, it, here's a, a you know the fifty thousand dollar question: If you're working with homeless youth, what's the most important thing you can give them? Mm. A phone and a data plan. That makes sense. Because what they found, yeah, was first of all the big surprise in this particular study. Uh, done in Chicago was the density of the networks that these homeless youth had. Yeah. I mean, uh, so, so, and, but basically they were texting, you know, 24 seven. Yeah. Uh, but that's how they, you know, that's how they survived. Mm -hmm. they, they had people who they maintained contact with through texting. And the one part of the experiment that didn't work was that people liked the fact that they could text their therapist and leave a message, but what they didn't like was that the therapists, you know, weren't available to meet at 10 p.m. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So, but but at the same time, there's a good example for a, you know a, 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 an at-risk population being able to say, okay, uh, we'll we'll leverage technology, and then listen. And there are barriers for people like if you can't afford a data plan, exactly. on the phone, then you don't. 
benefit from this. Yeah. But the ability to be able to text your, you know, your caseworker, um, have have voice contact when needed, uh, all those kinds of things. Like again, that makes mental health services more accessible, and you know, you don't have to rely on, oh, uh, I'm only supposed to see my therapist, you know, once every two weeks, and what happens in between. Exactly. So, so you know, I so I think the you know the future for mental health services is bright if we sort of build on what have we learned about evidence-based care how do we leverage technology and what role does that play in evidence-based care and then also remember that the third leg of the stool is you know peer and family support and if you can get all those things to come together uh, people will be able to experience less mental distress yeah wow no that's incredible i that was probably my biggest question with the um, going into using technology more and using the phone was what do we do for those who cannot afford it, you know, and yeah. that's the thing. Um, so I love that that's been already like looked into, you know, and thought of because yeah. that's a huge deal. And again, that's something that I feel like a lot of people would not be aware of. You know, they would maybe not know that that research is already being done, you know. Um, so that's so um, important to hear um, and so important for us as people who are just living in this world, you know, who don't necessarily have access to all that information to just understand that people who are in the field are doing as much as they can to try and make a better system. Obviously, there's been a lot of roadblocks along the way because it's not easy, especially when it comes to money and finding all the right places to put our funding. Um, but knowing that people are putting in the work, doing the research, trying to find a better system all across the board for people, you know, and working with the changes that the world has made, you know, like even in the last 10 years, things have shifted so much, especially technology wise and how much we use our phones and all of that. So having that knowledge is so important, um, because the hopelessness that I feel uh, some people probably feel all the time when it comes to the system of mental health, you know, um, and I feel it too sometimes. But mm-hmm. so knowing that, you know, there is hope, there is things being done, there is people fighting for everybody, you know, not just those who have the money, they're fighting literally for everybody is such yeah. a big deal. So I very much appreciate you sharing that insight and knowledge. Um, I think it's really important for people to hear. Yeah, well, well, and again, I think you know your your listeners should know that, for example, if you're uh, you know in Ontario, Manitoba, and BC, you know, bounce back's there, bounceback.ca, mm-hmm. uh, and and that opened the door to lots of services. Um, the uh, the you know in, here in Ontario, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, Connects Ontario is available for people who are trying to navigate that you know obscure mental health system out there because there is a trained information referral specialist who will tell you what services are available. Now, they'll also tell you how long you have to wait. Yes. But that's the world we live in, but at least you know. Exactly, um, yeah. And and so I think, you know, some of this is, as you've suggested, us getting our heads around, you know, how do we leverage technology? How do we make the, see these systems easier to navigate? How do we support people in the system? Um, and, you know, I think there's, you know, there's an opportunity now for, you know, the, the, the phone companies like, you know, Bell and TELUS uh, and Rogers and, 
you know, with some of their, their profits, they could dedicate money not just to funding projects, but to making sure ev everybody who had a mental health issue and couldn't afford a, a phone and a data plan had one. Exactly. Because, because that's the way uh, you're going to get most people uh, accessing mental health services and really build up capacity. Yeah, definitely. That would make a huge difference for so, so many people. All right, this is where we are going to wrap up this episode. Thank you so much, Steve, for coming in and sharing your expertise with us. It was so much information, and it was a very important conversation to be had. Thank you all for listening, and until next time, this is Moving Beyond Stigma.